Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You know, if you've got somebody like Jeannie Flynn, who was the first pilot, uh, you know, first woman fighter pilot, you got somebody like that coming out the very top of her pilot training class. What commander wouldn't want her flying a fighter for him, right? Or her? Yeah. So it just makes sense that that you put the best people in the job. Welcome to the Damcasters, brought to you in association with the Pima Air and Space Museum. I'm your host, Matt Bowen. If you are in the US, next week, the 23rd of May, 2023, is publication day for Eileen Bjorkman's fantastic new book, The Fly Girls Revolt. Now, this is the story of the women who forced the change to allow women to fly combat for the US Air Force. The thing is, there's always been women in combat. But over the last sort of century and a half, there's been much hand-wringing by men, mainly in the West, about whether it's suitable for women to be involved in roles that could put them in harm's way. During times of crisis and war, women have answered the call, only to be shunted back at the end of hostilities into less frontline roles. While this has been true of all arms of the military, in air forces, this line is pretty blurry even at the best of times. Does combat mean a combat-capable aircraft or actually firing weapons? Well, from the WASPs back in the Second World War through to women on the front line of today, the U.S. Air Force's journey has seen groups of remarkable women kick the door wider for each generation until skill and competence are the only requirements that are required to fly. So I'm delighted to welcome Eileen to the show. So to start my conversation, we need to start really with the WASPs and with the woman that led them, who has an oversized reputation. But the real question is, who was Jackie Cochran? Yes, so she was a very renowned pilot in the 1930s. Uh, She started air racing uh, in the 1930s and eventually won what was called the Bendix race, which was kind of a big uh, race in the United States at the time. Back in those days, you know, racing was huge. It made front page news, you know, whereas now it's kind of buried in the back section somewhere if it gets, you know, mentioned at all. So, um, but it was a big deal in those days. And, and she, like I said, had become, you know, very influential in aviation. And the, the fact that she was a woman 
you know, of course, made her her stand out somewhat. So um, so a lot of people and, and she also was married to a billionaire, <laughs> which didn't hurt. So, yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, so she had access to a lot of people that, you know, a, a, an average you know woman aviator in those days wouldn't have had access to, you know, like lunching with President Roosevelt and, and having access to his wife and who was very uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was actually very interested in having women become pilots. And it was actually through that relationship that kind of got things started uh, on the U.S. side of the house uh, in terms of women becoming pilots during uh, World War II. So. so I guess the elephant in the room is things have happened a little bit faster in Europe, shall we say, as things have, have kicked off a bit. What influences are happening to the Army Air Force as it was then in regards to, to women and the roles that they would later take up with within the Air Force as war would be declared in 41 for you guys? So, you know, again, initially there was um, there was actually a big push in the United States uh, starting in the late 30s to train pilots in general to kind of start building a, a bench, if you will, of civilian pilots that could come into the military if needed. And so the Army Air Corps at that time, actually in the late 30s, early 40s, uh, Jacqueline Cochran first talked with the Army Air Corps about potentially bringing, you know, women pilots in, there was sort of a lukewarm interest at that time. I think there was kind of a sense that, well, we've got enough men to go around, you know, there's enough pilots out there. And, and so we're not really going to need that. There were some people who were interested, they just wanted to bring in like onesies, twosies, you know, hire a few civilians here Mm -hmm. and there. And, and uh, Jacqueline Cochran actually had a much bigger vision to have like a whole separate core, kind of like they did in Europe, uh, to bring in, you know, a whole bunch of women, and have them be a, a separate entity. So, so they were the WASPs, weren't they? They they were eventually called the WASP. They actually started out as two separate organizations in uh, 1942. They were first a uh, there was a fairing squadron that stood up, and the women who qualified for that fairing squadron had to have 500 hours of flying time. They had to be commercially rated multi-engine. They had to have a lot of experience, and so mm-hmm. they were stood up initially. And they didn't need a lot of training. Uh, but there was also a large pool of women pilots in the country who, you know, maybe may, may, maybe had like 50 hours or 100 hours of flying time. And so the, so Jacqueline Cochran actually took that pool of women and formed a training uh, squadron or a training organization. And about a year later, that was kind of unwieldy having these two separate organizations. And so at that time, they... Uh, they merged the two organizations in August of 1943 into what was then called the WASP. Which I suppose we should say, what does WASP stand for? <laughs> we just went straight to acronyms and there's going to yeah. be a lot of those. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. So women, women's, uh, women Air Force Service Pilots is what it stands for, yes. And, and that's distinct from the Women's Air Force of its own, so that what would women be doing who wouldn't have been in Cochrane's flying role? So actually there was no women's air force at that time. Cause there was no oh, air right, force okay. in the United States. So yeah, we were still, we were still part of the army in those days. So yeah. And, uh, and, and so there was the women's army corps, uh, which was called mm-hmm. the WAC. And, and so women who were not in flying roles, you know, who were not working for the WASP uh, or WASP pilots, uh, would join the WAC. And and it's interesting that the WAC, actually a significant number of women in the WAC served in the Army Air Corps. The uh, Army Air Corps actually seemed uh, in some ways more accepting of women and, and used them in a lot more of their roles than the, than the actual you know, Army side of things. So. 
I'm I have a unhealthy fascination with Hap Arnold because his machinations to get his independent air force sort of played into a lot of the decisions he would make in command of the army air force in the second world war. What was his feeling with having women involved in the air force? Because he, he sort of seemed very keen and then not keen as, as things started playing out. Initially he was, you know, for it because again, he, uh, you know, he was waiting for the right time. You know, initially he didn't want to do it just because he was waiting for the right time. Uh, but after a while, it became apparent that women could play a big role in helping to free up men for combat positions. Mm-hmm. And and so he was very supportive of the WASP initially. And he was actually the one who made the decision to form, you know, to, to merge the two organizations into one and put Jacqueline Cochran in, in charge. But as the war went on, it became harder and harder to to justify the the women because there was no longer a shortage of male pilots. Um, one of the good things that happened was that initially they thought the attrition rate of pilots flying uh, overseas was going to be much higher. And, you know, luckily that turned out to not be the case. Uh, we still lost a lot of pilots, obviously, but, uh, but at much lower rates than they expected. And so they had enough male pilots. And, and so it became harder and harder to, uh, to justify the WASP and eventually... Uh, Congress voted to um, uh, to not allow them to militarize, even though Hap Arnold actually was in favor of that, and uh, and actually wound up uh, disbanding them before the war even ended. And the the Women's Army Corps stayed in place yes. until until when did did they did they get disbanded at any point, or were they just wound down slowly after? after so services? they were wound down slowly. The original uh, laws that were passed were. Because it wasn't just the Women Army Corps. You also had the, the Navy, uh, Coast Guard, mm-hmm. Marines, you know, all had their women auxiliaries. So um, so initially all of those uh, women's organizations were supposed to shut down uh, six, I believe, six months after the end of the war was the original intent. So, you know, there was a realization that, you know, there was a lot of women in these organizations. You know, it's <laughs> hard to just boot everybody out. You know, they needed a more orderly shutdown. So first there was that initial extension. But the military uh, leadership uh, liked the women. You know, they saw that, hey, these women played a very valuable role. And they were, in many cases, more educated than the men. They had fewer disciplinary problems. You know, there were good reasons to keep them around. And so the uh, military leadership actually lobbied Congress to to say, hey, could you put some laws in place to keep these women's groups around? You know, we don't need lots and lots of women. We're not at war anymore. But, but uh, you know, have a small cadre of women that are there so that if we do need them again, we've already got something to build on instead of starting from scratch like we did during World War II. When I was reading this section of your book, I couldn't get Kim Hunter in A Matter of Life and Death out of my head is because she's the, the whack in the control tower that David Niven speaks to as his Lancaster gets lost oh. in the fog on, the, on the way back. <laughs> okay. yeah. that, I, I, it's, all, all of my history sort of revolves around how I can apply it to a movie to remember it. <laughs> yeah. So as... As the, the services are winding down, you said they're, they're wanting to keep these, these cores that they can build from going forward. So what options were open for women who wished to join the new U.S. Air Force as, as it was coming into place? What could a woman do should she want to volunteer to be in the Air Force? So there were mostly just administrative roles. In in many cases, women actually did fewer things uh, in the in the WAF than they did when, uh, you know, when they were 
back during World War II. So they had mm -hmm. fewer options open to them. Most of the options were administrative in nature. There, uh, there were some women who were doing things that might be considered more operational jobs like air traffic controller. Uh, but mm -hmm. as time passed in the 1950s, a lot of those jobs were taken away from women when we were actually removed from them. Uh, and there was uh, one uh, instance where Jean Holm, who's one of the main characters in the book, um, she was uh, wanting, uh, she was made uh, into kind of an operation, operational planning job. And that was later removed from her because it was like, oh no, that's, that's too operational. You know, you, you need to be an admin mm -hmm. kind of person. And, and uh, you know, she wasn't happy with that, but she wanted to continue serving. Uh, some women did serve in uh, intelligence positions. Um, so I, I guess the thing we need to sort of delve into really there, because you, you've mentioned that operational role, because that starts getting close to the big barrier, which is a combat role. So the ban on women being in combat, he says, doing air quotes. What was that definition that is basically going to be the crux of our our conversation next world. So what, what involved a combat role? Because you think an operational planning role would not be in the firing line, but it was an excuse to, to move. Right. The laser, <laughs> the laser, the laser general home spoiler there, ladies and gentlemen, out, out of that spot. So it was, so there was two pieces. One was just a policy piece uh, mm -hmm. where the services didn't use per, uh, women in certain jobs. And the other piece was a law. So in 1948, when they passed the law that stood up the women's organizations on a permanent basis, they also, as part of that law, uh, included uh, included in that law that women were not allowed to fly combat aircraft in co or engage the enemy in combat in a combat aircraft. So, and uh, and then they also could not serve on combat ships, which by the Navy's classification, pretty much every ship you know, was a, was a combat ship. You know, there were a few, but most of them were combat ships. So, so that was the law that didn't allow them in combat. Now they talked about putting something in place for the army as well, but the army, it was a lot harder to say, you know, what they couldn't do. And in the air force and mm -hmm. the, you know, in the Navy, it was easy to say no combat airplanes, no combat ships, you know, but the army's a little bit more diverse than what they have. <laughs> so, so the army just agreed that we, by policy, we won't let women into combat jobs and they, they were the ones that got to define what a combat job was, and Congress kept a close eye on them. The uh, Air Force and the Navy, of course, uh, then by policy, you know, just decided what other jobs they were going to allow women to do or not to do. So, it, I guess it's hindsight. You look back and you can kind of see the problems from the very beginning because you're saying that's 1948 they're defining that over the next few years figure it out and then korea happens how does that start adding to the problems of, of what what a definition is because it's that is a specific war that we kind of remember being quite stale but the front line on that for what a role would be is quite blurry, isn't it? Well, Korea was, you know, Korea was most, I mean, they had more of a front line than they did say in Vietnam. So, um, mm. but the way the, uh, the way the military dealt with Korea was they just didn't allow women to go into the, th the theater except for nurses. Mm -hmm. So that was, they kept all the women stateside. Um, and that was, you know, very frustrating for a lot of women. You had like women who worked in Intel, you know, intelligence who, 
really wanted to go over to theater and help. And other women, you know, even in just support roles, uh, wanted to go and they were not allowed to do so. Um, which, again, now you've got a very valuable part of your force that wants to go help and they, they're not even allowed to, to show up. Is it about this time that our friend Jackie Cochran appears back in the in the scene? Oh yes, it's about, af- <laughs> it's about after Korea when they they start looking at things again. She seems the right person to bring in to help on the review of women in the service. She doesn't really, does she? No, she. Um, you know, there's. It, it, it's not a hundred percent clear that that she was who various people wanted to actually lead the WAF once it was stood up, but she did not lead the WAF. And it's not a hundred percent clear exactly why that happened. Did she not want the job? You know, were there other people that didn't like her, you know, that sort of a thing, but for whatever reason, she didn't lead the, the WAF. Um, but not, you know, within a few years after they stood up, they were starting to have some issues, um, nothing major, but it was more like I would consider benign neglect. You know, it, it, you know, it wasn't that they had poor leadership or anything like that. It was just the Air Force, the rest of the Air Force wasn't paying that much attention to what they were doing and giving them the resources they really needed. And so uh, Hoyt Vandenberg, who was the chief staff of the Air Force at the time, brought in Jacqueline Cochran to do a review of the of the WAF. And uh, and she did a very, um, uh, I would call superficial review. She went down to Lackland Air Force Base, which is where they have their basic training. And the women had a lot of issues with uniforms after after the war because you're transitioning not only from the service, you know, one service to another, but you now are having to develop uniforms for, you know, women that haven't existed before, uh, you know, on the Air Force. And and so there were some contracting issues and various issues and uh, getting the uniforms. And so the women at Lackland at that time had kind of a mishmash of, of uniforms. And so, you know, by definition, <laughs> uniforms are supposed to be the same, right? You know, but, uh, yeah. but that wasn't the case. And in some cases, the uniforms were you know, old, they didn't fit very well. And, and so, um, so anyway, Cochran, you know, basically reported back that, you know, the, she, she, she reported that the WAF were recruiting a bunch of misfits and they all looked terrible and, you know, and, and using a lot of very um, offensive language, uh, you know, towards these women who were just trying to do the best they could. And, and, uh, and anyway, the report wound up getting leaked into the press uh, and of course, the press had a field day with it, especially yeah. if it had been anybody else, they probably wouldn't have paid much attention to it. But here's Jacqueline Cochran, you know, and so it, mm-hmm. it's a big deal. Because on the other side, you, you, you mentioned her briefly, Mona, is, is um, right. Jean Holm. She's a fascinating character. Is someone who there's points in your book where you, you can almost feel her frustration sort of oozing off the page. But she, she seems to be the perfect person to to lead the wife and to have the battles that open the doors for, for what comes later. She seems a remarkable lady. Yes, she was. That's a very open yeah, question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she seems a remarkable lady. Yes, let's move on. Can, can you tell us a little bit, little, little bit more about her? Yeah, so, so unfortunately she was, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, but you know, when the early battles were going on, she was still very young. And so she wasn't really a part of those early battles. And she was off in the field, you know, like working over in Germany and, and uh, doing other things. And so it, uh, it wasn't until I think the late fifties that she kind of got back to the Pentagon and, uh, or I'm sorry about the mid fifties that she got back to the Pentagon and, and started moving up in rank. And, and, you know, her timing was actually perfect because about the time that she was finally at an age and grade where she could become the, the, 
um, you know, the, the chief of the WAF, uh, uh, take over the WAF. She, uh, you know, that was also the time that coincided with uh, Vietnam and with the women's movement starting up. And so, um, you know, prior to that, I think a woman trying to do the things that she did would probably have not been well accepted, you know, within the Pentagon, mm -hmm. she would have been told to go shut up in color, you know, <laughs> so, but, uh, but, you know, it was the mid sixties by the time she got in. And, and, uh, you know, I think that, you know, part of it was her own personality, but it also, I think a lot of it was timing, you know, she just, she had the right timing to be able to start, you know, pounding on her high chair, if you will, you know, and, and saying, Hey, things need to change. You know, we've got all these women and we need to give them more opportunities. They want to serve in Vietnam. Uh, there's no reason they shouldn't get to serve in Vietnam and, you know, and just all of the various issues that women were dealing with at that time. She was a very strong proponent uh, in, in getting a lot of things fixed for women. Because Vietnam seems to be that sort of watershed is, you know, the, the note there really about a, a war without a front line. Um, there's that great line in your book as well as, as one of the generals in Germany stating, well, if something happens here, <laughs> They're all going to be on the front line, anyway. right? Right. Oh, how, how how does Vietnam and the, the complexities of the, the conflict there? How does that start changing the way that women can be seen to be deployed, and how that opens more doors as 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 we start moving forward into the seventies? I think there was a couple things in Vietnam. You know, like you mentioned, some of it was no real front lines for the most part. So you had, you know, if, if women were on a base, uh, for example, doing an administrative job, they were just as vulnerable to, say, a rocket attack, you know, as the as the men were. And there were some real ironies in Vietnam. You had women serving over there who were civilians. You had women who were, you know, Red Cross volunteers, USO volunteers. You had women all over the place over there. And yet initially they weren't letting military women go. It's like, this is crazy. You know, <laughs> why are they any more vulnerable than, uh, you know, than these other women that are allowed to come over? And so eventually that that did change. So I, I think the other thing, though, that was different about Vietnam was the amount of uh, television. Um, you know, it was very much a uh, not a televised war, but uh, there was like, re uh, you know, film film that came over every day from Vietnam. I mean, I grew up during uh, during the 1960s and my dad was actually in Vietnam. And I remember watching the nightly news, you know, every night there was something from Vietnam and there was usually footage that had come over, you know, and it was usually a couple of days old by then, you know, because they had to fly mm -hmm. everything over in those days, but but they would have footage of everything that was happening. So, so I think the public, you know, that was the first time the public really had uh, a lot of insight into what was going on in the war. And, uh, and I, I don't know how much they actually saw women serving, you know, in Vietnam. Uh, but there were certainly newspaper articles about women that were serving over there. I mean, it was, it was, I think, becoming more obvious to the public that, uh, you know, that warfare is changing, and, and there are women in the military. So it was kind of that first, um, you know, first movement, I guess, if you will, you know, towards what happened later in the Gulf War and, uh, you know, the 70s and 80s and then leading up to the Gulf War, which eventually kicked open the door. So, yeah. Because you have you have women serving on the, the regular airlift flights. You have, um, yeah, I talked to Julia Cook about the, the Pan Am stewardesses flying the, the flights in, in and out of Saigon and, and other places as well. So, as you said, there's there's a lot of women involved in various roles there. So, this is kind of the point where you yourself enter the the story. 
And I have a couple questions I'd like to ask you before we get on to the, the, the academy and things like that. For someone growing up in the Vietnam era, as someone who is completely um, removed from that sort of environment, why the Air Force for you? I've sprung that on you and I apologize, but it was, as I was looking at this earlier, so I haven't actually asked that question. So I, I, this is all lead up for me, just begging you to tell me about the F4, but we'll get to that again later. But I, I, I was thinking about this. I was just intrigued to sort of get your viewpoint as what drew you to the, to the Air Force. So, you know, this is a question I always have a little bit of trouble answering because I actually joined the Air Force mostly because I was just looking to do something different. Uh, I was uh, I was up in the Seattle area. I had graduated from college. I was working as a computer programmer, and and I just was wanting to do something a little bit different. And I looked around, and and uh, the Air Force recruiter uh, was uh, recruiting at the University of Washington, and I went and talked with them. And you know, initially, I was just going to eh, let's just see what this is all about. And and it and I. I chose the Air Force to talk to because my dad had been in the Air Force. So I was you know, familiar yeah. with the Air Force. And um, uh, but, you know, I wasn't like just dying to join or anything. I just went and wanted to talk for a few minutes. And the next thing I knew, I was filling out all this paperwork and getting my physical. And, <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I was off to, you know, officer training school. And, and I thought, well, I'll just go do this for a few years and see how it works out. And and it worked out just fine. I, I found out that I really liked it and I was pretty good at it. And so I hung around. And you, you you went sort of the en- the engineering track, and you still how how does how does a computer programmer end up being an engineering? We'll call you a test pilot because that's <laughs> basically how how did, how how does that how does that happen? Because yeah, you know, we're going to get into yeah as as your book really goes into a lot of deal about the the women in in, in flying roles, but you, sorry front seat flying roles but before then there was the the likes of your good self blasting great big holes in the sky in the back seats of f4s and things we're going to come back to i love that thing what what sort of journey is that on because again that seems operational and again we're still in a period where to a lot of senior commanders operational means combat how did you find that experience as you made your your way in, in your early part of your career so the so test airplanes are not considered combat airplanes they're not combat coded uh which is a term the you know the, the military uses for airplanes that will actually deploy and go into combat uh they're they're usually uh pre-production versions or they're heavily modified uh for flight testing and so they're not considered combat airplanes and so therefore women can fly in them so and and actually women have long been able to fly like in the backseat of various even combat coded airplanes, um, you know, the, the Air Force has long and Navy have long, uh, you know, taken reporters, uh, you know, up for flights or, mm. uh, you know, uh, people in Congress. And uh, they never limited that, you know, based on gender. So um, so that so it wasn't so much that women couldn't fly in combat aircraft, they couldn't fly them in combat. And so why would you train somebody to fly a combat airplane if they're not going to fly in combat, right? So that was kind of kind of the way the Air Force viewed it. So and the Navy to to some extent as well. So I guess if 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 you're wanting to if you're wanting to be involved in that sort of frontline flying, the engineering track is 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 the one you would follow at that time, was it? Right, right. Because mm. yes, because women couldn't fly in combat aircraft and and uh so 
there was a, a woman, uh, Leslie Kenny, and she she actually went to test pilot school as a flight test engineer uh, back in the mid seventies because the women couldn't even go to pilot training uh, at that yeah. time when she first uh, came into the Air Force. So she was the first woman to go through test pilot school as a flight test engineer. So, what is flight? Sorry, flight test. What is test pilot school? like because it's as as someone who's just spent an absolute fortune on a new copy of the right stuff with pictures and things in it we have a very fixed idea of yeah the place we all want to go edwards and and, and look at stuff what was what was your experience of of the, the the test school so the curriculum is very similar depending uh, i mean no matter whether you're a pilot or a navigator or an engineer uh you know there's several different uh uh there's several different, um, i trying to think of the right way to say it, specialties uh, mm-hmm. in the Air Force that go through the school. So and no matter what one of those specialties that you're in, the academics is, is exactly the same. Uh, and, and, and typically the way you uh, typically the way they do something is you learn the academics about behind something. And then, uh, like, say, uh, uh, climb, you know, performance, mm-hmm. climb performance. You'll learn the academics behind that. And then you will uh, plan a test mission. And you'll go out and collect data uh, in some airplane, uh, T-38, F-16, C-12. You know, there's different airplanes that they mm-hmm. use. And then you, uh, and then you um, analyze that data and you either re- write a report on it. Then maybe it's coming out with some kind of a short report or it becomes an input to a larger report. And you do that repeatedly. <laughs> you do that again and again and again and again. And where the difference in, between, say, pilot and flight test engineer uh, arises is when you go out and you fly, the pilot flies in the front seat and the engineer flies in the back seat or the back end, you know, depending upon what kind of an airplane you're in. And then also there may be flights where the pilot is flying in the air and the engineer is sitting in a control room on the ground. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's the main difference is the courses are very similar. It's just a matter of where you're flying in the airplane or whether you're flying at all. We're going to take a quick break so that we can get the latest from the Pima Air and Space Museum with Head of Collections, Andrew Bowley. Here we're at the Pima Air and Space Museum with our Lucian IL-2 Sturmabek. Um, the Sturmabek was the most produced military aircraft in history with 36,000 built. It's an interesting aircraft that it's made out of multiple different materials. The cockpit and the engine is all kind of behind armored steel. The inner wing is kind of aluminum like you'd expect. And then the outer wing is all made out of wood with metal struts and obviously metal fixtures and stuff. And the rear fuselage is also made out of wood, with the horizontal being made out of metal and the vertical being uh, wood and metal and fabric. These aircraft could take up quite a bit of punishment. You know, they were designed to just kind of get in there and be protect, protect their aircrew from ground attack fire, um, whether it was, you know, you know, 20 millimeter cannons or machine guns or light weaponry. Um, they had bomb bays underneath the wings um, where the weapons uh, where the bomb base were they had rocket um, slots out on the wings for rails for rockets um, they had cannons in the wings and also machine guns the cockpit is if you notice the front windshield is made out of laminated armored glass and the thing is ridiculously thick um, this aircraft itself was uh, restored from a wreck um, from a lake in Russia near Leningrad. This aircraft was shot down on, well, 
was going to say on its last mission. It was obviously its last <laughs> mission, but it was shot down near the end of the siege of Leningrad. It was during winter. Looking at the recovered wreck, um, it looks like it took some fire in the um, radiator cooler vent there on the bottom, which probably caused the engine to overheat. So they made an emergency landing on a frozen lake. The crew got out. It ended up sinking in the lake after the ice melted. And then back in the um, 88 or 89, the Russian Navy recovered this aircraft because this actually did fly with the Russian Navy not the Russian Air Force, but they were all doing the same thing around Leningrad. It's not like this thing was, you know, slinging torpedoes around. Um, But it got recovered, all the metal bits. um, The original tires were still on the aircraft with air in the inner tubes, um, which those we have taken off of the tires and put them away to put on display eventually um, when we do a more thorough display about the Sturmovec and the Eastern Front and this aircraft in particular. But it was an interesting story long before I started working here at the museum. I think sometime in the late 90s or so, or early 2000s, the museum's called up this woman. Her husband passed away. I think he lived out in California, if I recall correctly. It was like, we have an airplane in our hangar. Do you want it? And we're like, well, what type of aircraft is it? Well, the last thing anyone expected was that this guy had a Sturmovec sitting in his garage. So... As I said, it was all the metal bits. The landing gear was still retracted in there. There was air in the tires. Um, a few years ago, we started going in the restoration. We hired a gentleman in Germany who had plans. He built the wooden wood parts. He built the wooden fuselage. Rear fuselage shifted out. And he, his uh, woodworker came out here and built up the two wings. And then we kind of cleaned it up as best as you know, we could and used all the original parts and made it the, uh, well, actually at this point, the only Sturmovec on public display here in the United States. Um, there's one in private hands, and the Smithsonian is apparently working on theirs as well. Probably because, you know, since we got our Sunday, they wanted to get theirs done. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now, back to the show. Okay, I'm going to ask you, what was your first flight in an F4 like? I, I, you know, I don't actually really remember it that well. <laughs> you know, you know, it's funny. I think when you've flown a lot, you know, you kind of stop, you know, remembering all these kinds of things. But I, I do remember how powerful it was um, that mm-hmm. it was because I had flown, you know, in a few, uh, you know, I, I'd flown in a lot of smaller airplanes, obviously, and I'd flown in a T-38 at that point. And, and I just remember how powerful it was, the acceleration down the runway. I remember the afterburner kicking in, the afterburner on, an, on a T-38, you hardly even notice it. You, you, you 
put in the afterburner. It's kind of like, you know, and you <laughs> and the F4, you can really feel it kicking you in the back, you know, as you're boom, 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 as you're going down the runway. So yeah, it was, uh, that, that was probably the, the main thing. And just, uh, I was surprised at how well it flew, but, you know, with it, it's an older airplane, you know, I was kind of expecting it to be hard to fly, but it's actually, you know, I, I got a little bit of stick time on it. And, and I remember being, uh, being impressed with how easy it actually was to fly. I was a little bit afraid of it, you know, kind of intimidated, mm. but um, turned out to be actually very easy to fly airplane. Because that's one of your, is it 20, 25 types that you've got in, in your book? Yeah, about 25. In your logbook, this? Yeah, yeah, it's about. Uh, I'm, I'm picking that one because <laughs> it's fun. I, I love it. It's fantastic. And it's it's one of those aircraft that did everything because it had to and then lasted forever. It's just one of those iconic airs we're getting off track right (laughs) because as you're joining the air force there's interesting changes happening there's the debates going on in congress about opening up the academies but you also have the air force saying that they're going to take a group to as a as a test pool to to see if women can fly that's a terrible way of putting it but i guess that was the feeling within the air force what was that first group of women like because one of your your characters there is kathy rambo who seems just the most remarkable <laughs> remarkable lady what what was what was their experience like being yeah saying the first is 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 a terrible way of putting it but they they really they really were a group that all eyes were upon yeah they were the first and and that actually happened a few years before i came in i i came in in 1980 mm-hmm. so um so a lot of- i'm 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 blending stuff in <laughs> yeah. so that we can chat about you all these fantastic yeah. people i'm making sure you, you you're front and center yeah. you're the guest but but that that <laughs> you know if i could just digress just a bit i mean that that was one of the reasons i came into the air force initially i was not interested in the air force or any military service because when i graduated from high school in 1974 Women couldn't go to the academy. They couldn't be pilots. Um, I guess they were just starting to open Navy, you know, air, uh, Navy pilots to women. But um, but there were very few options for women when I graduated from high school. But then, you know, six years later, when I was looking for something else to do, everything had changed, you know. And so it seemed like a, a better opportunity at that time. So but but getting back to the, the first women, the uh, the Air Force finally decided in the fall of 1975 to open up pilot training to to women. And initially, the first class, uh, the first class of 10 women, actually, I think the first two classes of 10 women each, they wanted it to be women who were already in the Air Force. So it had to be somebody who, say, was already a nurse in the Air Force or a uh, or an administrative officer or a maintenance officer, something like that. So Kathy Rambo was actually still an ROTC cadet um, at the time at the University of Oklahoma, and she wanted to, to go to pilot training and she was you know, very disappointed to find out that they were only going to be taking women who were already on active duty. But it turned out there was a, uh, there was a loophole and the reserve, uh, our reserve component uh, was being allowed to send somebody to pilot training. And so she applied for that reserve slot and the reservist said, sure, we'll take you. And so she was able to, to join that class, even though she was a brand new second lieutenant. Um, but that the first group of women that went through, you know, everything, uh, you know, I think there, a lot of it was they weren't quite sure what to do, you know, with the women's hair and the the, the flight suits didn't fit right, you know, and, and and a lot of those things were actually still issues when I was you know, when I was going through, believe it or not. So yeah, there's still issues in some cases. So yeah, but um, 
but yeah, there was a lot of initial, I think, consternation about, you know, you know, women wearing makeup and, you know, will it interact with the oxygen and cause problems and, and, uh, you know, what kind of, you know, you know, just all, all kinds of things that they were very concerned about, most of which turned out, of course, not to be a, a big deal, but, um, but like the women showed up initially and had to cut their hair short. They weren't allowed to put it up, you know, with bobby pins and, and that sort of a thing. And so they, they just kind of, you know, I think they kind of had to feel their way through things. And, and there were things, I'm sure there were things that came up as they were going through that, you know, nobody had anticipated, well, what do we do about this? You know, that sort of thing. And then of course there was always, you know, the concerns about, you know, with what if one of them gets pregnant, you know, and you know, they're going to get grounded, they won't be able to fly. And so there was, you know, a lot of things that we know how to deal with today because we've been dealing with them for 40, 50 years, but, but things that were brand new then and not quite sure in a lot of cases what to do. We're going to come back to the pregnancy bit at the end, but cause that's really changed. Yeah. Um, but we have this in, well, I'm going to call them intrepid cause they're, they're, they, they're fantastic. What, what, I keep saying careers, what can they end up doing? Cause again, we get into this combat, barrier what could their trajectory be for aircraft that they could fly once they've once they've got their wings once they've 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 proved their metal it's it's an interesting conundrum that that starts taking a while to to figure out doesn't it yeah so yeah so initially because of the combat exclusion law we call it um they were not allowed to fly in fighters or bombers they uh, were restricted to flying in say transport aircraft or cargo airplanes uh uh, refueling tankers, aeromedical evacuation, uh, things like that. So you know, basically your support aircraft. And so it didn't matter how good they were. Um, in fact, Connie Engel uh, was mm-hmm. uh, graduated number one in her class. Normally, if she had been a male, she would have been allowed to go fly a fighter if that's what she'd wanted. Um, and uh, she wasn't allowed to do that. So she did get to stay as an instructor uh, flying in the T-38, which is the you know, high-performance supersonic aircraft. But that was about the best a woman could do in those days if she wanted to continue flying high-performance airplanes was to become a T-38 instructor. You know, otherwise she was going to go fly C-141 cargo airplanes or, you know, or, you know, one of another, you know, one of many airplanes that were available to them, but, you know, airplanes that were in a support role. And and I just, I want to clarify, there's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) There are lots of, those airplanes are very important, you know, but... But if you if you graduate at the top of your class and you want to be a fighter pilot, you know, that was very frustrating for a lot of women who did very well and, you know, by right should have been, you know, able to get a fighter. But because the law could. A hundred percent. Yep. That <laughs> didn't, probably didn't make that as yeah. as as clear. So let's just take a before we get back to the flying proper, the. Academies opening up was quite a change that took quite a while for them all to figure themselves out. And the U.S. Air Force Academy being the youngest of the academies, we could say, they resisted and they kept a lot of the the sort of traditions like the the Bring Me Men ramp. You know, Kim Kim Campbell talks about that still being there in the in the 90s. Mm -hmm. You thought that would have that would have changed what? did the air force find when they opened up the academy to women after um was it uh 
Jimmy Carter signed signed that one through. It was uh, 1976. It was actually Ford uh, that uh, that signed ah, Ford, the legislation yeah. that opened the academies. So um, women started the first class entered in 1976. So the first classes did. So um, the uh, you know I, I think the you know I I can't really speak to the other academies. I've read a little bit about them, but you know mostly I I focus on the the Air Force Academy. The uh, I think one of the big things that Air Force did was they they really did, I think, try to um, to do what they thought was the right thing to bring the women in and, and have them be comfortable. So um, and you know, they wanted to give them every chance to, to succeed. They brought in uh, women from active duty to uh, you know, kind of be mentors for them. Uh, women who, of course, hadn't gone through the academy themselves. You know? So, you know, here they are now trying to mentor women who are going through the academy. So a little bit of a little bit of a conundrum there. But um, one of the things that, that they did that um, in some ways was good, in some ways was bad, was initially because there were not that many women, there were about 150 to start, you know, out of a class of, you know, there's about, I think, 14 or 1500 that come in. So a fair, you know, fairly small number of women. Initially, there was a lot of concerns about having them be with the men all the time, you know, and, and uh, especially in the dormitories. And, and the Air Force has multiple dormitories. And, and so what they, their solution was to put all the women in the same dormitory. And they were kind of a little bit away from the rest from the men. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like they could just walk across the street. You know, they were a little bit further away. And, uh, and, and in some ways, that was good because the women became very close. They, they created this very tight bond. Um, but at the same time, they were missing out on uh, what was going on, the informal interactions and bonding that you get with your, you know, with your squadron. So they were assigned to squadrons, you know, within the academy, but they never saw them except in the daytime. In the evenings when they went back to their dorm rooms, they never saw, you know, it was just the men and then the women. And they didn't, the men and the women didn't interact in the evening and have those you know, casual conversations and, and, you know, and really feel like the women were part of the team. And so they actually, to their credit, the Air Force Academy recognized that early on that, you know, there was this good piece of it, but that it was really hampering their ability to be part of the team. And so uh, after the Christmas break, they came back and they moved all the women into the, into the, into the dorms and integrated them in. And, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, they just had to take a few bathrooms and relabel them as ladies rooms, you know, (laughs) and they had some, I think initially they, if I remember right, I think initially they were all like on the same floor, uh, you know, and then, and then later they just moved around and, you know, obviously they don't share rooms, you know, but now they're all just pretty much, much integrated. And so they found that that worked a lot better and, and everybody was able to become a better team as a result of that. It's an interesting time because as that first class is graduating in the early eighties, when 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 you're joining joining the Air Force, you mentioned it. You know the the ongoing problems with kits and things like that. When you look back on on your early years in the Air Force, are there things that just make you sort of shake your head and go, "How how did we get through with with that stuff?" Um. You know, I, I, I'd say not so much. I mean, a lot of the equipment issues, you know, part of it is in, in many cases, if something fit really bad, a lot of the times the Air Force was, they would, you know, pay to do some custom, like they would pay mm-hmm. for a custom oxygen mask. Um, everybody got a custom helmet, didn't matter if you were a man or a woman, you know, so there was, 
I, I think they really did their best to accommodate and, and they weren't going to say anything. You know, I never wound up uh, modifying my flight suit, but I know w- women that did and they're not going to say anything, you know, as long as, as long as it remains functional and it doesn't, uh, you know, it, it's not obvious what you did, you know, like if you added a bunch of new zippers, you know, they might go, mm, not so sure about that, but, but there's, they actually allow a fair amount of, you know, tailoring, if you will, to, to get something so that it's, so that it's functional. So, and some of it, you know, in, in their defense, I mean, there was such a small number of women, I think in the, in those days uh, that it was hard to justify, you know, creating a whole new series of equipment, you know, just, just for the small number of women. I think it was more economical just to, just to do the customization for the women who really needed it. So. The eighties are an interesting time. You you have a new president in, in Ronald Reagan. You have the the military buildup there. You you also have some, and we call them very specific conflicts. So you have the likes of Grenada, Libya, Panama, um, the the bombing in Beirut as well. But all of those see women being thrust into frontline roles again. How did those conflicts really start to push that? combat embargo back and starts showing that there wasn't really, I'm going to say a need for the embargo, but showing that for operational capability to be as high as it is, the women had a, as an equal role to play. I think a good example of that is, you know, Margie Clark, who, who I talk about in the mm-hmm. book is she was flying. See what she was. First of all, she was one of the first women to graduate from the Air Force Academy. And then she went to pilot train. She was flying C-141 cargo airplanes out of uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And she flew into uh, Beirut uh, the day after the, the bombing there. Uh, you know, flew a bunch of uh, army troops into there. It was still a very hostile area. And if she, if she had been removed from the schedule, somebody would have had to bring, a, you know, they would have had to bring a male pilot in whose turn was not to fly that day, right? You know, they might have been, you know, relaxing at home, you know, having their day off and they would have been called in to fly. So not only would it have not been fair to her, you know, to, for her to not be able to go fly, it would have been fair to the male pilot that they had to, to pull in to replace her. And the same thing happened just a few days later when the U.S. invaded Grenada. She was on the schedule. And so she went in, even though it was a hostile area, she went in and flew and it was the same thing. You know, they would have had to pull a male pilot in if they had decided to pull her off the schedule. But she was perfectly capable of flying and she was, mm-hmm. you know, the best person to take the job because she was already scheduled to fly. That didn't happen to some women who were in uh, on a base on the West Coast uh, in California. Their commander said, no, that's combat. You women are all coming off the schedule and they brought a bunch of men in to replace them. So, you know, so it's creating churn in, in the schedule and it's really not fair to, to anybody to do that. It's disrupting, you know, your your normal you know, your normal capability, if you will. So, so it was things like that that I think started to make people realize that, that, you know, telling, telling us that we can't have women in combat uh, can be disruptive to our schedule. Uh, It's unevenly applied, right? Because on the East coast, the commanders all went, the women are on the schedule, go, you know, (laughs) on the West coast, they went, nope, pull the women off, you know? (laughs) And so, you know, created, uh, created those disruptions and, and so, you know, I think those were some of the earliest cracks that people started to realize that the combat laws, the way they were written, you know, might have maybe worked great when you have a very definite front line and, you know, you're, you know, you're fighting in ten, ten, uh, trenches and, and things like that. But when you have 
war, modern warfare without well-defined front lines. And you've got these small operations that, you know, happen very quickly. You go in, you come back out, that these definitions of combat no longer really apply. And so trying to now fit women, not being able to fly into combat into this mold uh, no longer works. And you start getting those really interesting situations that we'd see in, in the Libya operation with the tank is being planned by women, flown by women, fueling up the, the, the bombers going in, which again would just be amplified come, come Desert Storm a little bit later. And I thought the Libya example that you have in your book was utterly fascinating of just how prominent women were in not only in the planning and the execution of it, but sort of seeing, you know, again, surely fueling something to go is as combat as going. Yeah, it, it's an intellectual exercise that the Air Force clearly were, were struggling with themselves. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, in theory, you're not combat because you're not going into the actual area that's being bombed. But you're still sitting out there in an orbit. And if somebody figures out there that you're there and that you're refueling those bombers, they can much more easily go after you. You're very vulnerable than go after the planes that are dropping the bombs. And and if you, you know, as I think there's a famous quote in the book, if you get the tankers, you've got the bombers, right? You know, because now the bombers don't have enough fuel to either get to their target or they're all going to run out of gas on the way home. So, you know, and the Air Force recognized that that women were going to be in perilous situations. I mean, they, the women had to go through survival training and, uh, you know, evasion, escape evasion training, all of that, just like the men. So, you know, even though they weren't going into combat, and I put that in quotes, uh, they still had to go all through all of that same training. So I, the Air Force recognized that women were potentially going to be in perilous situations. I just read Eileen Collins' book and the survival course just seemed horrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As someone with terribly soft hands, it, it just seems, <laughs> it seems the, 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 the worst. Um, the other thing that starts cropping up is not being um again combat capable whatever we want to call it that was having an effect on the career progression that some of the more senior women in the air force were having as well at this time wasn't it so what were those sort of career limitations that being in non non-combat roles were having upon some some of the the higher ranked so clearly there's you know career progression for all career fields in the in the air force and uh, there's a lot of people who make general officer without being, uh, you know, without even being pilots, right? So, um, mm-hmm. so there's there's career progression, but the problem is that as you get more and more senior, that the the most of the highest ranked positions go to people who have combat experience or are in some kind of combat role. I mean, if you look at all of the past chiefs of staff of the Air Force, you know, all men, all fighter or bomber pilots, <laughs> you know, combat role kinds of, of pilots. Um, and uh, and if you look around again at the highest ranks, you, know, you start looking at the two and three star generals, you know, again, you start to get, you know, more and more positions that are, you know, kind of, they really favor people that have combat experience or, or experience in the combat arms, you know, even if they don't have actual combat experience. So, you know, they've been through that training and they understand how that all works. And, and that becomes much more valuable at the higher ranks. And so initially it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, it, when you're a captain, you're not really thinking that much about being a four-star general, right? <laughs> you know, but you're, you're just doing your job. But as women started to get promoted into the higher ranks, you know, major, lieutenant colonel, they started to realize that, 
oh, wait a minute, you know, because I'm not in in a combat position, that's probably going to limit my, the upper end of where I can get to. You know, I probably am not going to be able to get into those best jobs and, and uh, be able to achieve those higher ranks. For a lot of women, that doesn't really matter. You know, a lot of people just want to put in their 20 years and retire as a lieutenant colonel um, or perfectly happy retiring as a colonel. Um, but for women who want to aspire to the to the best jobs and and the highest ranks, uh, you know, it was a limiting factor. So the, the war in the Gulf, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, really starts putting a very direct focus on operations as a as a whole. Just how involved were the women in the Air Force in the planning and the build up to Desert Storm? Because we've already been talking about them being uh, quite prominent within the transport logistics roles as that incredible buildup happened in, in late 1990, what sort of roles were being carried out by women and what was their experience in an environment that doesn't take kindly to women in prominent positions? I think it's a polite way of <laughs> yes. describing it. So the women actually were involved in you know all aspects of the buildup. And then the actual shooting war as well, except for, you know, actually going into the combat area and dropping bombs, and that sort of thing. It was a logistics war, you know, taking, you know, thousands of tons and maybe millions of tons. I'm not even sure what the right number is, but, you know, there were just thousands and thousands of flights going over from the United States, uh, you know, into Europe and, and on into the Middle East for months on end, carrying cargo and troops and supplies and you know just all of the things that that we needed uh you know to to set the stage in order to actually have the war when it when it did kick off and a lot of those pilots were women and it's not just the pilots it's all the other crew members it's your navigators your load masters your flight engineers your linguists you know, all of these uh your your tankers your boom operators you know all of these women were you know women were concentrated in those aircraft and those were the main show for you know, the first six months of the buildup until everything finally got into place where the, the combat could actually start. So women, uh, women played an outside, outsized role in the, you know, in that buildup period. And there was also um, another factor was that a lot of women by then were senior enough that they had, uh, they had decided to move into the reserves and the reserves were activated during the war. So a lot of women uh, in addition to the women that were on active duty, you had a lot of women who were in the reserve squadrons and they were activated and were flying over there as well and, and taking part in all of that. And, you know, I think that for the most part, the, the men, the, 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 you know, the Western men were fine with the, the presence of the women. Uh, but some of the, um, you know, some of the men in Saudi Arabia itself uh, were, uh, you know, not so comfortable with their presence. It, and there were issues with the women, you know, if they wanted to go off base, you know, having to, you know, wear a scarf uh, over their head, they weren't allowed to drive. Uh, in some cases, the uh, the host country would um, separate the men and the women, they would put the men in tents, and they would put the women in a hotel five miles away, which doesn't, you know, if you're trying to keep your crew together, <laughs> so that you can all get together early in the morning and brief and go fly. Uh, you know, it's not very conducive to that. Um, but, you know, I think overall, uh, you know, overall, I think the women you know, did well, you know, everything considered. And some of the women I talked to said they never actually had any problems uh, when they were in country. Uh, but other women, you know, experienced some, you know, derogatory remarks or some of the things that I just mentioned. 
the, one of the experiences in your book that to jump to ask me was that Sheila was it Sheila tuning yes. on on the, uh, the the AOS aircraft that is the combat paradox writ large, isn't it? Right. She is vectoring F-15s onto their target. So therefore she's playing an active role in combat. Right. Yet she cannot be in a combat role. Right. She can't pull the trigger, but she can tell the pilot how to get there to pull yeah. the trigger. Right. Right. <laughs> so we sort of come out of that time and it's, everything is ripe for change, I guess is, 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 is the way to put it. It's been, I no war is positive, but from a victorious standpoint, there's opportunity coming out of it. You have a new president. You have uh, promises being made by by Clinton that, oh, many many promises and other things promised by Clinton that he may or may not have done. Um, that's a different podcast. I can recommend a couple. Um, but what is happening sort of as we hit that sort of middle nineties? Because it's not still not a great environment. You 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 detail that the the tail hook scandal as as, as well, which was um, shocking thing really on on the navy side. But you then have a presidential commission coming in, and you have a fantastic um, organization of of women across all the services to start pushing this through. What was that organization, and how did they go about making positive change? So that was the women military aviators. Um, the uh, let me back up just a second um, because go for yeah, it because because uh, what happened initially at the end of the war um, it, the war ended the end of February and that was right at the time that the in the United States they start debating the the budget for the next year so yeah, so so here it was ninety one they're starting to debate the budget for ninety two uh, in Congress uh, so perfect timing to slip a provision in to repeal the combat laws. And that's exactly what happened. So um, I won't I won't dwell on that. You know, there was a little bit of it went very easily through uh, that the um, the House uh, side of things. Uh, got a little bit stalled in the Senate, um, but did eventually pass. But then the Senate also stood up that commission that you mentioned. So mm-hmm. um, and so the commission was to study the roles of women in combat. I put that in quotes um, because. Uh, Many times, if you want to delay something, you study it, right? So that was kind of the, the thinking uh, by people who didn't want this to happen. So, so yes, yeah, so the commission started in the fall of um, 91, and uh, they went around the country. And the, the, the women military aviators were not, not really involved in the, the study itself so much. They were more kind of working on the sidelines because they couldn't go like in, in lobby. You know, they had to be invited to testify. What they could do, though, is work behind the scenes, you know, getting in touch with the people who were, um, you know, working administratively with the commission. Like each one of the services had a liaison to the commission. Uh, and I, I talk about, you know, one of the men, uh, Mike Lynch, uh, you know, who played that role. And so, uh, so the women, you know, the WMA could, uh, you know, get in touch with these liaisons and, you know, perhaps suggest topics that they could talk about or, uh, or, uh, you know, here's some women who would be good to testify, uh, you know, that sort of a thing. So they, they played kind of a behind the scenes role uh, in that. So, um, but earlier they had played a, a much bigger role in, uh, in educating members of Congress uh, as to why they needed to repeal this law in the first place. And then they continued to, um, you know, to play a role during the commission, you know, again, writing to their Congress people, you know, writing to, to various folks and, and uh, you know, working within the system, uh, you know, to try to, um, 
you know, to try to get the, the policy changed. Because once the law was lifted, it was it didn't automatically open the door because the service still had the policies in place to keep women from flying in combat. And so, again, they continued to, like I said, it was mostly behind the scenes at that point, as opposed to being very, um, you know, vocal. Uh, so policy change, I guess it's like a process. No, in, in large organizations, nobody likes change. And um, no matter how small or how big, it's it's a hurdle to jump. When when does the, the Air Force finally, Ben, because you've got, you've got the fantastic General Merrill McPeak, who's against it, against it, against it, until he has no other choice but to support it. When is that sort of defining moment when the the the, the uh, I keep wanting to say ban it, it's the wrong word isn't it you you, you said the term a second ago combat the, exclusion um, exclusion yeah that's it because yeah, ban ban bans, bans <laughs> the wrong the wrong the wrong thing yeah. yeah so so when when does the 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 policy on the combat exclusion lift and what happens yeah so this really was the the Clinton administration coming in so because mm-hmm. the commission finished up its report. Uh, yeah, just at the exact same time that the election was going on in the United States between George Bush and and, um, and uh, Bill Clinton. And the commission actually recommended that combat roles remain closed to women. So that was not good. So, But that same time, uh, Bill Clinton was elected president. And the report was just a, a recommendation, right? You know, you can ignore any recommendation you want. And he had pledged to open up uh, combat to women. Now, unfortunately... You know, it didn't happen the, you know, like the first, I think there was a lot of hope that, okay, Bill Clinton's in office now, you know, the end of January and pretty soon everything's going to open up and still things kind of dragged the, 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 uh, uh, the um, uh, service chiefs were still against opening the, the combat, you know, the combat aircraft. And as you mentioned, Merrill McPeak was probably the most vocal of all of them, you know, saying that he didn't want women to be flying combat aircraft and, and, but you know, it was one of those things where it was going to happen, right? I think everybody knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of when is Les Aspen, the Secretary of Defense, going to, you know, stand up and say, uh, okay, women are now going to be allowed in combat. And um, and that finally happened on April 28th, 1993. There are some people, um, and I, I believe that this is probably at least some of what forced it to finally happen, because initially Aspen had said that he would make a decision by the fall but the tailhook report, as you mentioned, uh, the tailhook uh, that happened in the fall of 1991, um, uh, you know, a very scandalous uh, event, you know, women molested, you know, and you know, assaulted, all this kind of stuff. And, and the investigation into that was about to become public. And that was in the April time frame. And there was some thinking that the the Navy was getting very, very nervous about this thing going public. And there was some thinking that the Navy wanted to go ahead and open up a combat to, to women uh, is kind of a, uh, you know, to, to kind of help, I think, soften the, the blow of the, the tailhook report. And uh, I, again, I don't know if any of that's actually true. I mean, there might, th- those two events may be totally disconnected, but um but the, the it, it sounds like a, a, a usual political move, right? Right. Got so this yeah, scandal over here. Let's do something positive. Over yeah, here. yeah. We we know this is going to happen anyway, and this other really bad thing is about to happen. So let's do something really good, you know? Right. So, yeah. So so anyway, for whatever reason, you know, whatever the politics were and everything, then you know, Les Aspen 
And, and obviously the services knew ahead of time that that was going to happen. You know, they probably knew at least a few days, you know, maybe even a couple of weeks ahead of time that, that this was going to happen, that he was going to announce that, that he was going to open it. And so, um, so General McPeak, you know, he was, uh, you know, he had always said, Hey, if they open it up, you know, I will implement the policy, you know, I'll shut up and salute and, you know, and, and go implement the policy. And so, so he wanted to be the first, right. If you're not, but if you're going to make me do it, I'm going to at least, you know, lead the pack. And so, um, so he identified the first, uh, three women fighter pilots. Actually, he identified seven women who were going to be the first pilots um, before April 28th. And then he got the first three of them uh, to come up on stage with him and announce to the world that, that, that we're opening opening combat, opening fighter airplanes to women. And here's the first three. As someone with, you'd have been in for about 10 years by that point, wouldn't you? What, 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 what was that moment like for you when, when you saw, I'm, I'm, I've got the picture here yeah. In your book. Of, <laughs> yeah. Who have we got? So we've got Captain Sharon Presler. We've got Captain Martha McSally mm-hmm. and Lieutenant Jean Flynn. What was that like for you as a, a woman with decent service under her belt to, to see women finally getting into the F-15, which was, it still is the, the aircraft of, of choice, isn't it? Yeah, well, I was, I was just thrilled. So, you know, I, I don't remember actually watching it on TV or anything. Um, I was actually going to school at that time, Air Command and Staff College. So, you know, it's not one of those moments that I remember where I was, you know, when, when I heard about the <laughs> announcement. Um, and plus, I think, you know, we'd just been talking about it for so long, you know, it had just become <laughs> and Oh, it's uh, done great. Yeah, yeah, I think it was kind of like that. But, you know, I do remember being very happy, you know. I remember thinking, it's about time, you know. And I I, I knew women who wanted to fly fighters. And, and you know, a lot of them, it wasn't going to make a difference because they were too old by then. But, uh, but there were younger women who, you know, were going to be able to take advantage of that. And I was very happy for them. Throughout your book, we get to meet some truly remarkable women. We've only mentioned a couple specifically because we, the book is fantastic, dear listener. And go out and grab yourself a copy because it's I, I whizzed through it in, in, in a couple of sittings. It, it's it's fantastic. But it's it's been well twenty five years now, thirty little, nearly little thirty. Yeah, yeah thirtieth anniversary yeah. is in just a couple of weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So where are we now? Because we've had. I think where I'm getting confused is we've had 20 years of continual conflict now with, with women in, in prominent roles for that. Is it the norm now or are there still issues, shall we say, with with women in combat or is it just an accepted thing within, within the Air Force? I, I'd say it's an accepted thing. It's the norm. Women are still small numbers flying in combat mm-hmm. aircraft. But I would say they're accepted. And, you know, I, I do see, you know, sometimes you see people making a big deal out of things uh, about, you know, a woman doing this or a woman doing that. I would like to, I hope that we're going to get to the point someday where it's not a big deal that a woman's doing something anymore. Um, but, but I think generally women, um, you know, have been accepted in those combat roles. And, and commanders want the best people for the job. You know, they mm-hmm. don't really care if it's a man or a woman. You know, and, and, and like women like to say, the airplane certainly doesn't care if it's a man or a woman flying it. You know? <laughs> and, and, you know, if you've got somebody like Jeannie Flynn, who was the first pilot, uh, you know, first woman fighter pilot, you got somebody like that coming out the very top of her pilot training class. What commander wouldn't want her flying a fighter for him, right? Or her. Yeah. So it just makes sense that, 
that you put the best people in the job. So. And of course, we, we, we mentioned a, a little bit earlier, we've just had the, the news a few weeks ago of, of Lauren Olm and her husband in the seat next to her in, in the B1. And it bugs me that there is a baby in this world or about to be a baby in this world who has more time on the B1 and more time <laughs> supersonic than I do. Yeah, it, 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 it seems that, you know, it's, you're right. It, it, it feels like it is the norm. And, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, it. we're going to be talking to, to Kim Campbell as, as well oh, and, good. and talk about her experience. Funnily enough, my only question about the incident that you open your book with is not really what happened. I want to know what her crew chief said when he saw the aircraft. Because it's, yeah, there's lovely, I'm glad you're back, ma'am. That's fine. What, yeah, crew chiefs with broken airplanes are special, special. <laughs> special <laughs> yeah. That's next week, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, I'm sure that'll um, be a great talk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, it, it it does truly feel like Norman. I think, I think you're right. I think for... Those of us that spend far too much time talking about these things, it's 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 remembering just it, it's pilot woman pilot is 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 a redundant term, right? It's, it's just a pilot. A, a, yeah. It's just a pilot, <laughs> right? Right. That's really what it should be, and that that was the thing. You know, that's why I opened that my book with that anecdote. You know, was mm-hmm. the fact that we were all talking about this A-10 pilot that got hit and, and flew her airplane back. And, and nobody was like, Oh my gosh, it was a woman, you know, I mean, obviously it was a her, you know, everybody said her and she, but, but nobody, you know, nobody batted an eye that it was a woman who'd actually done this. So, yeah. What was the experience like for you writing this book, getting to, to go back and, and see the journey of all, all sorts of, not just pilots, um, but women in, in the air force. What's your you know, books out now or will be by the, the time this goes out, what's your feelings on having gone back and, and looked at that journey? I learned a lot and I'm hoping other people will learn a lot. I, you know, I lived this and, you know, from 1980 until, you know, the door opened and even passed, you know, I didn't retire until 2010, but I, there was so much I did not know about the history. I, I knew the general outline of the history. I knew about Jacqueline Cocker and I knew about the wasp. I knew about Jean Holm. You know, those kinds of things. Uh, but there was so much that I didn't know. And the other thing was there were things going on, especially in the 1980s when I was a young officer. I had that young officer spe- perspective on things. And there were things going on that I just I didn't interpret right or I just didn't understand them. And so going back and doing the hard research and really digging into things to really understand what happened and who did what to to who, those kinds of things... But like I said, it was very educational. And, and that was the, the thing I wanted to do was put together this whole story. You know, not just the story of the women aviators themselves, but the whole story of everybody that was involved and all of the different attitudes and, and all of the different things that happened. And like I said, it was never a linear path to get there. You know, it was always this, you know, two steps forward, one step back, you know, sometimes marching in place for a while. You know, it was it was just uh, you know, it's just an incredible journey that took, you know, from nineteen forty eight, you know, all the way up through nineteen ninety three, you know, to to finally make that finally make that happen. So well, Eileen, I I love going on that journey in, in your book, so I can't thank you enough for writing it and i can't thank you enough for spending some time with us talking about it. and i wish you every success for the book because i'm going to be annoying everybody about it and so, <laughs> so well thank you so it's, it's <laughs> but yes thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me on
I had a fantastic time chatting with Eileen about her career and the women that she came up with. The Fly Girls Revolt, the story of the women who kicked the door open to flying combat, is out next week in the US, published by Knox Press, who very kindly provided a review copy to me, and will be out here in the UK on the 20th of July. I will re-up this episode at that time to get it out, because it really, really is an interesting read. It covers a lot of ground, and you get to meet some remarkable pilots along the way. As always, can't thank Eileen enough. Next week, we talk to Kim Campbell, who's an A-10 pilot. We're going to talk to her about leadership, amongst many other things. We may even discuss that morning over Baghdad, for which she's become rather well known. As always, I can't thank you all enough for your incredible support of the podcast. It's a lot of fun. I'm getting to meet some incredible people, and I hope you're enjoying it as well. Remember, the best way you can share the love is to tell all your friends about this fantastic aviation history podcast that you're finding out so much amazing cool stuff and the host he's okay as well tell your friends share the links that is wonderful if you can fancy leaving a review or pop some stars into your podcast app of choice that'd be great too of course there's a patreon for three pounds a month links in the description no pressure on that if you can great you get these early we throw some of the videos up pictures from my travels they all go up on that page but you know hey get the podcast that's what the fun is so until next time thank you so much for listening oh one more thing we have a new website if you haven't checked it out already head to www.thedamcasterspod.com you get all the previous episodes on there with some little fancy new arts about it really there's going to be more things on it as and when i get the time so check that out again tell your friends because you know why not <laughs> next week as i said kim campbell looking forward to that and as always please do take care of yourself the Damcasters is hosted and produced by matt bow and is a bony abroad podcast production to learn more about our podcast and check out our previous episodes head to www.thedamcasterspod.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.